we're just starting to be more aware of um, not just the male-female breakdown, you know, the stories that all different communities have to tell. Welcome to Monster Complex. I'm Will Christopher, editor of MonsterComplex.com. If you're a monster fan or a monster hunter, then you're in the right place. Monster Complex is devoted to monster fiction in all its forms, from books to movies to TV and other media, from Frankenstein to Godzilla, Buffy to X-Files, Ultraman to Hellboy. Stick around for author interviews, lists, special features, and more. Linda D. Addison is a poet and writer of horror, fantasy, and science fiction. She's also the first African-American winner of the Bram Stoker Award, presented by the Horror Writers Association. In fact, she has won the Bram Stoker Award multiple times, including a Lifetime Achievement Award. Ms. Addison's most recent book, and for that matter, her most recent Bram Stoker Award winner, is The Place of Broken Things, a poetry collection she worked on with collaborator Alessandro Manzetti. The Place of Broken Things includes poems of visionary imagery encompassing death, gods, goddesses, and shadowy Kafkaesque futures. In this interview, Linda and I talk about some starting points to find great speculative and horror poetry, how winning so many awards impacts an author, and advice for poets hoping to break in. The Horror Writers Association has awarded you the Bram Stoker Award multiple times, including multiple awards for your poetry, a Lifetime Achievement Award, and an award for Mentor of the Year. I also should mention that you were the first African-American recipient of a Bram Stoker Award. So for our listeners who are, let's, let's start at the beginning. How did horror poetry, or more broadly, uh, you know, science fiction poetry, become your specialty? Well, I mean, that's, I, I had to actually think about that. I thought it was kind of a good question because I don't know I've actually tried to verbalize that before. But when I was a kid, I mean, like first, second grade, third grade, I loved uh, uh, reading fairy tales, you know, the Grime Brothers and Anderson, uh, Christian Anderson and all those. And at that time, this is like, I was born in 52. At that time, those fairy tales were kind of edgy and dark. They were like... I'm sure they're much cleansed now. And in fact, I, I did some looking and a lot of the stories have been cleared out of what would have been considered violence now. But the point of the stories were to teach. And I was very drawn to that. I mean, the idea of uh, Little Red Riding Hood being eaten by a fox, a uh, wolf, and then this impression I had in my memory of her being still alive in his stomach. I mean, I was like, what? <laughs> So my imagination really early on was drawn to more edgy kinds of things. And I think somehow, that I don't know if I was born with this sort of poetic voice that I have in my head all the time, but it's like a song I hear. I always love song verses too. So when I started writing, I wrote just kind of weird poetry. I wrote weird stuff because I liked the sense of it more than the reality of, of the world around me uh, when I was growing up wasn't as interesting as what I could make it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know if that even begins to explain it because I'm not sure I understand either. All I know is it's always been there, this sort of weird darkness, looking in the shadows, you know, not being afraid to be afraid in, in so many ways. Many readers have at least some idea of Edgar Allan Poe as a poet and a horror writer is that an appropriate reference point, or would you suggest better reference points for us? 
Well, I think if you're going to go super traditional as far as horror poetry is concerned, then you're going to go to Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, he certainly was uh, one of the voices that was a huge influence for me. But I picked up a lot of um, what I call lyricalness in, in language in fiction writers, too. Like, I really loved Shakespeare, which is very strange to say, because when I read it, I didn't understand it. But there, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of dark stuff happening in Shakespeare. And the language, you know, the language of people like, um, I'm looking at a list because I'm, I'm, there's so many people, people like um, Toni Morrison and um, Maya Angelou, um, uh, other writers that I read later on, like Stephen King and Anne Rice, I like the darkness. I like the dark story, especially when it's um, tagged into an emotion for people. So I think for a poet, I mean, I think it would be an interesting question to ask other poets, because a lot of what I gathered was from fiction. But certainly, um, you know, I think some of the traditional places to go, like Poe and so forth, would be good. So if someone listening to this wants to take a deep dive and find more uh, poets in your sphere, where, where do we find those people? Well, I was thinking of two organizations that I'm an um, active member in that really have put a lot of, of, of attention. In particular, the uh, SFPA, which is the Science Fiction Fantasy uh, Poetry Association, um, they have several collections that they do where they give awards for. I've actually been an editor for one of their um, anthologies for awards. And they are a great place to go to introduce someone to what speculative poetry is going on. The other thing that I've often suggested to people is the HWA, which um, has a reading list on their main site, and you don't have to be a member to, to see it, has the categories for poetry collections uh, that have been up for a Bram Stoker Award. And there's some wonderful uh, options there as far as buying collections, reading what other people are writing, uh, whether you do the finalists or you just go to the reading list itself. There's just so many wonderful poets out there. I mean, in my early uh, influences were people like Tom Piccarelli, who is no longer with us. Um, there's a lot of uh, Charlie Jacob, who is no longer with us. When I first started publishing, I used to find out where she published her poetry in magazines, and then I would send my poetry there. So I think um, as far as sources are concerned, those are the two organizations, I think, that have done a lot to support poetry. And as a result, also can introduce people to where uh, poets are getting their work published and also the, the kind of poets that are coming out with really interesting, wonderful work. You've won multiple awards. How does winning that many awards affect your perspective as an author or does it change anything? That's such a good question because I... Uh, and I've said this in my, to other people talking, I don't write for awards. That's never been a concept for me. So the first Bram Stoker that I won, I was stunned because I was in a final um, ballot with, with my heroes, like, you know, Charlie Jacob and so forth. So I was, I didn't even expect to win. Honestly, I felt like, yes, being on the final ballot is everything. So what it has done is helped me allow me the, the light to be able to put light on other people. 
And I think that's the biggest influence for me. Not that it doesn't feel good to have an award. It's great. <laughs> but um, more for me, the idea of having opportunities where I can be an editor, um, be part of a mentoring environment, and help bring um, uh, new and emerging writers, published poets into the light, which is what happened with me. I had amazing mentor mentors. Um, when I was coming into the field. And so um, for me, I think that's the biggest thing, I mean, is to know that, and of course I get less rejections than I did 30, 40 years ago, so that's nice. <laughs> Not that I don't ever get rejected, but a lot less. But before I got my first real acceptance, I had boxes and boxes of rejections, so. But I think that's the most positive and the biggest thing for me. And of course, it's the idea that people in the industry, um, honor my work is just, I don't even have enough words of gratitude for that. So I'm filled with a lot of gratitude for that, for sure. One of your awards also is for mentor of the year. So what does it, what does it mean that you are a mentor? What is that? Uh, technically, the way it goes is the HWA has a mentoring um, program. And a lot of professional writing uh, organizations have this. So I believe SIFWA may also, I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but I, as a member of the HWA mentoring program, they put out a call for people. And I've been working with poets for the most part. I did work with, uh, I did mentor a, a writer who was a short fiction writer. And what it, for me, what it means is helping that uh, writer or poet understand in rewrite what kinds of things they need to look for. I don't, I think in, in the way I write is the way I teach. And that is you just write whatever comes and don't even worry about the grammar, the form, nothing, nothing, just get it out because that's where the real jewel of the work is. And it's in rewrite that you shape it for others to read. And so all of us, when we write, have certain things on a checklist that I like to help the writers that I mentor create a checklist of what you know are your kinds of things that you might want to look at. And, and so at the end of uh, working with someone as a mentor, and I still continue to be friends with, with them and, and go back and forth in conversation, but at the end of the mentorship, I hope and want them to walk away with a sense of, I have these tools now to understand how to make my writing more focused, more whatever it is they want, lyrical, whatever it is. And also the idea of how the marketing works, how submissions work. So it's like, it's such a wonderful thing to do because I'm always learning something myself. When I have to work with someone else, I learn something new also. So that's really what mentoring is. I was stunned to get an award for it. <laughs> Because again, that's not why I do it. I do it because so many people have lifted me up. And I do a lot of mentoring outside the official programs. When uh, nominal fans come to horror fiction, uh, you know, the general public thinks horror, most of the author names who come to mind are, um, they're often male, they're often white. And so for people who are listening to this and can't see you, I, I feel it's necessary to include in this dimension, you are a black woman. So from your perspective, um, how has the landscape changed over your career and how much of it is there is still a struggle? Well, um, not just black, but with a purple mohawk, just saying. Not that it makes a difference. 
and if we, for people listening, that is also right. If we yeah. cross paths in a real life convention, that would be me. Um, it's huge. I mean, I've been sending work out for fifty years, and in the beginning, especially in the, in things like the genre fields, the spectre fields, there were almost no women. I mean, that was like extraordinary. And now there's a lot more women being published. If you look at the names on the reading list on HWA, or you look at the names in a table of contents of, of poetry and, and writing anthologies, you often see so much better. And I think editors and publishers are much more aware of it. And the community, the writing community, is not shy to call somebody out if they see <laughs> that their table of contents and and it's a, and what that call out to me is an opportunity for that editor and publisher to evolve into the real world because we live on a planet with people who are all kinds of things and from all countries on this planet and to try to stay in that one lane that has been traditionally there whether you do it consciously or not and I think it's not even a conscious thought for most publishers and editors. So I think a lot has changed. What is left to be done is is clear if you still look at how the situation is. I mean, we're just starting to be more aware of um, not just the man-male-female breakdown, you know, the stories that all different communities have to tell, the trans community, the, um, you know, as I said, other countries have uh, poets that published that have a voice. So I um, just would like to see things continue in the way they have. I mean, this last final ballot and winners of the Bram Stoker had more African-Americans and American Indians on it than it's ever had. Al going, oh my gosh, now I'm going to mess his name up. Al going. I think it's going back. Thank you. <laughs> and I know him. I'm sorry, Al. <laughs> he actually was, uh, he actually won a Stoker before me. And um, as an American Indian representative, I'm sure he's the first to win the Lifetime Achievement. He won a Stoker and he was also given the Lifetime Achievement um, this year. So to see that kind of space being representative is wonderful. So there's still work to be done in it, but I think it's moving in the right direction. Speaking of the most recent Bram Stoker Awards, uh, I believe the award that you won most recently was for a book that you did with another author. So when we look at your bibliography, there are books that are your books and books that you have done with other people. My question is, how is your work you what you do how is what you do different in a book that is your book versus a book that is part of you and other people yeah yeah i um i've done three collaborations the one that just won was a um poetry collection called the place of broken things that i wrote with alessandro minzetti and he's in italy i was here so we were doing it electronically which was quite fun um it's such a different thing you know, that book and Dark Duet that I wrote with Stephen Wilson, who is no longer with us, we wrote those two books I wrote with poets where I wrote my own work and I wrote work, what I call call and re return from their work, something that, you know, I read a poem of theirs and something came up in me and I wrote a version of, a uh, sort of call and response version of it. 
the other book, uh, The Four Elements, wasn't actually um, a collaborative in the sense that the, the four poets in it, we all wrote our own sections. Um, and each person picked a different element. So that was a different structure. It wasn't so interactive as much as it was just uh, for that. But for working with Alessandro Manzetti was the same as working with Stephen Wilson in the sense that we both started with a love of each other's work. And we also had basically so much respect for each other. And we had set a ground rule saying, you know, I'm gonna send you a piece if you want to go back and forth and write this together, fine. If not, then you, I'll write it on my own. And also, we set down a basic rules saying that each other could correct and change if we saw it. And, you know, there was just like the basic concept being no ego. So what happened in the end, and, and this is true with Dark Duet, but in particular, the latest book with Alessandro, I wrote poetry I could not have written by myself because each of, he and I both influenced our own music, our own approach, the things that he sent to me were often very music oriented. What I sent to him, I just, I get inspired by so many strange things. <laughs> so there, the whole thing is just a new voice. It's a different voice that I wouldn't, think to even try to duplicate now without him, even though there may be some subtle influence going forward. So I think it, for me, it's always an, a way to explore, oh, what new can I do? This is a new game. I don't know what the rules are. Let's see what happens. And um, just couldn't be happier with the magic that came out of what Alessandra and I did together. So how did how did you decide to do that book? Who was it? The, the two authors or did somebody put you together? How, who said we should do this? Well, the funny thing is that with this book in particular, The Place of Broken Things, I, I met Alessandro uh, a few years ago and I actually presented him with his first Bram Stoker for poetry. And I'd read him before and I was having breakfast with him and his wife. And we were just talking about how much we loved each other's work. And he said, <laughs> We should do an, a, a collection together. And I was like, okay. And he grabs a napkin and literally writes on it in two years or whatever. Linda and I will do this, a book together. And he hands it to me to sign. I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> so I signed it and I forget about it. And in the beginning of last year, Alessandro emailed me and said, I've got a publisher for our book. And I'm like, our what? Because <laughs> I was deep in like writing some other projects. And I was like, what? Now, between that napkin <laughs> and the beginning of last year, I have a document that I just put lines in. And I use them often as titles. So I had thrown a title at him, The Place of Broken Things. He was like, oh, I like that. So... Basically, he is the main reason that this even created. He found a publisher, Crystal Lake Publishing, and we had a deadline. He and I both had other projects we were working on. I think we wrote 33 poems in, I want to say, five weeks. Like, I just stopped doing everything, and I just wrote day and night. Whenever something would come up, I'd get up, I'd write, I'd send it to him. Whew, it, was a, <laughs> it was a tornado, but I blame him. <laughs> So that it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I can't tell you. Comparing that kind of experience then with collections that are just you, mm -hmm. are you are these 
and I'm, and I'm trying to think how to ask this, and I apologize, I apologize if this is insult, an insulting way to, to think of it, but I'm thinking of like if it was a band, some bands just do songs, and now we have enough songs to do an album. Some bands do a concept album. Are you doing concept albums? Or are you doing, I, I've written enough poems for a book, let's do a book. You couldn't have said it better. You were actually, I hadn't again thought of how to say this, but you said it perfectly. Uh, for Dark Duet, for Four Elements, for The Place of Broken Things, there were themes already set. And to write in that sort of, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a hard theme. Like basically we had the title, Alessandra and I. So we both agreed as long as the poetry either had the or place or of or broken or things in it, we were going to work with it. So, and they, all of these um, collaborative books came together within a period of time. For my own writing, totally different. And if you look at the, on my site, you'll see, um, when I've had things published is I don't publish a book every year. It really becomes almost um, very organic for me. I've been journaling since 1969. So I have piles and piles of books that I write all the time in. And I get to a point where I, organically, I feel like something's ready to happen. And that's when I'll start putting a collection together. Sometimes it is, pointed out by someone else, how to recognize a demon has become your friend. Actually, the seed for that was started by Bob Booth, who is no longer with us, but is one of the creators of the Nikon uh, conference in Rhode Island in July. He won't be this year. But um, he sort of said to me, and I'd known him for years and years and years, and he was huge influence with uh, uh, feedback with my, my poetry. And he said, you know, Linda, you've got a lot of short stories. Maybe you should think about doing a short story collection. You know, but in general, a lot of them just start because I feel sort of a pull in me. And then I start. And the way they come usually is I go back to the journal the day after the last book was finished. And I go through the journal and I start pulling out seeds and I build poems on them. And then a theme comes. It's almost like, it's almost like putting together um, a, a, a whole composition without really knowing <laughs> what the theme or anything was. <clears throat> but it always does come. So it's a very, very different, longer process for me. As you as you mentioned before, you're not just a poet. You are also a poetry. You've you've been an editor of poetry also. So for somebody listening to this, um, who's thinking I either they are a poet or they would like to get into poetry, what do you consider the best ways to pursue writing and publishing poetry? Yeah, I've been the poetry editor for Space and Time magazine for I think thirty years. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I've also, as I said, edited some anthologies. The one I'm, this is off your question, but I got to say it. The one that I'm so happy and proud of is called Sycorax's Daughters, which was, uh, which is an anthology of fiction and poetry written by black women in horror. And the, the thing is that horror is a very widespread sort of thing, but I was so happy with that. It introduced the speculative community to 33 women authors, black, um, it ended up as a finalist on the Bram Stoker uh, ballot, which I couldn't have been happier for. Anyway, back to your question. <laughs> what I usually say to people when I talk to someone about this is there's really kind of three things, right? Write 
And when I say write, that's one word, but I mean write all the time, whether it's one line, a poem, whatever comes to you, allow yourself space for that every day. Try to do that every day, even if it's just five minutes, say from four to four oh five, because I truly believe that a lot of creativity comes from the sub and superconscious. And if you allow it a space each day, it will know, oh, this is when I get to show up. So, you know, muse is all wonderful and sweet, but at least give, <laughs> give the muse through the subconscious a window each day. So write everything down, whether it's on the phone, on the computer, or on paper. And then in that terms, then decide what you're going to create in a finished form, right? So there's first writing, I call it wild writing, just whatever. And then you find something you really find interesting, you create it into a poem or short story, whatever you want to call it, and make it as good as you can. Try to get feedback if you can. The second thing in it is to read everything all the time when you can. Because again, I believe a lot of, I look back now and I think a lot of the voice and music in my writing came from reading that I didn't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to read Toni Morrison. I'm going to take the music of her fiction. And no, I just read, read, read and filled myself up with these things. And then the third thing is marketing. You've got to just find the markets, you know, go out, somehow document. And I think there's um, maybe software that will do it. I know at one point I even wrote some software a long time ago, it's no longer available, <laughs> to track um, submissions. Um, there's online sites like Raylan, R-A-L-A-N, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, Raylan.com. There's a lot of online markets, but find markets, and this is what's really professionally important. Believe what they say in the guidelines. If they say they don't want a poem that's longer than 50 lines, don't send them 51 because you just think your poem is so amazing. No, be a professional, read the guidelines, and, and keep the work out there. You know, if, if, you send, if you've gone through the writing stage, you've got it as good as it, and you send it to half three markets that you're going to send it to in case it comes back. If it comes back, get it back out again. If you can't make it better, keep it out there. I think it's too uh, easy. And, and I think later on, maybe you asked about pitfalls. <laughs> so we can talk about that too at that point. But there are pitfalls you can fall into because these creations are our children. And it's very easy to get emotionally attached to it. So write, as, write it all the time. Make it as good as you can. Read everything. Get it out in the market. And, and trust me, I've told people this. If you do this, you will get published ultimately. You know, you will see something from it that will move you along to where you need to be or want to be. <laughs> and as you alluded to, I, I was going to ask you about pitfalls. So what are some other pitfalls that you see, especially as an editor, you see things coming in and you're like, oh, I wish they hadn't done that. What are some pitfalls that you see um, poetry writers falling into? Well, the first thing that occurs to me is I wonder if they've read the work out loud to themselves. Because I think of poetry is closer to a, a performing art to me than anything. And so when I'm writing my own poetry and, and polishing it, the first thing I always go to is reading it out loud because my voice is going to let me know I'm going to hear when something seems awkward. And so even though most people probably don't read poetry out loud, they're reading it in their heads nonetheless. So um, some of the pitfalls that I see when I read poetry is 
there's an awkwardness that if they had read it out loud, they would have seen. Another thing is shaping poetry. I, when, I, when I work with um, other poets, I always suggest let's try some other shapes. Like if you're doing, reading a poem out loud, where your breath stops is maybe a good place to go to the next line because the person is reading it. And even though they're not reading it out loud, that, gives, that shape gives them a sense of the emphasis that you're making. So a lot of times I'll see something that really looks good, but it's just like the flow of it, the way it's shaped, doesn't communicate the meaning, the lyrical sound that the poet probably meant. And another thing I think is really important is to be aware of what, what form you're working in. It's really hard to write a good rhyming poem. And if you're going to write a rhyming poem, then I really think it's worth studying, <laughs> seeing some examples of it. I don't write a whole lot of them for that reason. I don't think it's easy to do. People think it is, and it's not. Just because you rhyme the last words on a, on a line doesn't make it a good poem. There's more to it. So there's a lot of, of subtleties that sometimes when I read a poem, I think, ah, they almost got it, but not quite. You know, a little bit more study, a little bit more playing and they would have gotten to it. And then the pitfall is outside the editor line, which is what I mentioned earlier. And that is, I know so many talented people who write, but we don't know them because they get, as is true with any human, tender to the thought of it being rejected. Or if it gets rejected, wondering and, and doubting, is it good enough? I always tell the story. I sent something to Asimov's science fiction magazine, poetry, for 12, more than 12 years before I got accepted because I wanted to be in there that bad. And they would reject it and I'd send it somewhere else. And a good 80% of what they rejected, I published somewhere else, but I got in. Took more than 12 years. <laughs> so I, I think that's, you know, it's important to keep your work out. And that's a pitfall. That's just a human thing. It mm -hmm. really is. Linda, what do you consider the best ways for readers to support their favorite authors? Well, the most obvious one was one I was actually going to change my name to, but I decided not to. I was going to change my name to Linda by my book Addison, <laughs> but I decided maybe that was too obvious. <laughs> I think um, buying poetry is so important because unless you get on some great show like um, Oprah's doesn't have it anymore, but she has a reading thing. It's really hard to get money coming in and live off of it as a poet. So buying poetry, reading poetry, and mo really important is, is try to writing reviews and getting them out and talking about them in um, social media. And when I say a review, uh, a lot of people think you have to write a whole essay on it. No, if you write two lines and put up on Goodreads or Amazon about the book on social media, it can make a huge difference to opening that poet or writer to other readers. So I think it's really important to do that. So what are the best ways for people to connect with you or find you online? Well, my site is Linda Addison Poet, all one word, because there is a lindaaddison.com and she's a lawyer doesn't look like me, as I like to say. But one day we will meet and have a picture together. That'll be awesome because uh, she's very active in what she does. So lindaaddisonpoet.com. And I'm on social media. I mean, if you go um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you'll find me easily enough. <laughs> and my books are out there in the 
ether to be bought, of course. <laughs> okay. Um, now, we did not discuss it ahead of time, but you mentioned right before the interview started that you were working on a novel. Is that something that you feel you could talk about at all? Is that, I guess really the question is, is that as different for you as somebody on the outside looking in would assume? Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Feels like a whole nother planet in some ways. And I'll say it in this way. Um, I have published a lot of poetry and, and fiction in different anthologies. I think the latest one that's out is Miscreations. Do you know about that one? Monstrosities in Today? Oh my gosh, you should check it out. So I have a poem in there and it's fiction, you know, mostly, but I have some poetry. I have, there's some poetry in there. But for 50 years of writing and, and, and pushing work out, I've stayed away from novels because I was kind of afraid. <laughs> I was kind of afraid that if I started writing a novel, I would never finish it and never get published again. And no one would ever, I, people were just like, I don't know what happened to Linda. She went and wrote a novel 20 years ago. We haven't heard from her. So, and my writers group, which I've been with since 1990 in New York City, called Circles in the Hair, which also we, we still keep in, t in touch electronically, have often said to me when I sent in, a, when I gave them a story, you know, Linda, this is like a book. And I'd be like, no. <laughs> well, I finally um, sat down and started the beginning of 2017 working on a novel. Um, over the time, I've gotten less afraid. I also had conversations with a couple of really amazing people, one being Joe Lansdale, who said to me, Linda, why don't you write novels? And I was like, because I'm scared. <laughs> and he was like, but you know how to write a good story. I was like, yeah. So he's like, well, why don't you just write each chapter like a story? And I was like, what? Oh, okay. So... <laughs> So this novel that I just finished and I'm editing now is science fiction, um, maybe dark science fiction. I don't know. I'm not great at putting labels on my stuff. I'm, I like creating, but I let, you know, the, the labeling stuff is, is a mutual thing that I do with others. And it's a, a, what's called a novel and stories. So it's um, stories that are connected. There's a theme. It's in a future that I created years ago in um and in a anthology that was published and i always wanted to play in that universe i just was so fascinated with it so i came up with all these what would it be like in that universe and in that universe is there's portals opening all over the place they're so small they can open up in your brain they're big enough to cover the sky and there's all these beings coming out and my real question was what is the impact on humans? Because there's like two kinds of science fiction writers for me. There's ones that are super, super into tech and ones that are into what is the human impact. I've always loved Asimov and Bradbury for that reason, and Frederick Poole. So that's what the book is basically. It's a journey through this future I created, looking at it from different points of view in the society, from prison, from working class, from from different points of view and the impact with the line going through it to the end. So I don't know if that really explains it, but <laughs> <laughs> it's been quite a new journey for me. I will say it's hugely different. And then on the other side, here's the part that's been the same. I write very organically. 
when I write poetry. I don't sit down and design it. It usually comes. It's just like a, a breath for me. It's like music I hear that I'm dictating. Fiction hasn't always been like that for me. But when I started this book, and maybe 50 years of practice writing helps, I don't know. When I started this book, all of a sudden, all of those 100,000 words came the same word. Like I could hear it. Like I didn't know all the time where it was coming from. Like I didn't have to sit down and do an outline on what was going to happen next. Every time I sat down, the next came. So we'll see how the world feels <laughs> about my novel exper experiment. My next one is actually more of a traditional novel. It's a trilogy. It's science fiction. I have like 15 I want to play with. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll have to watch for that. So, uh, Linda D. Addison, thank you very much for joining us at Monster Complex. Oh, my pleasure, because I love monsters, and I'm complex. <laughs> Thanks for joining me for this episode of Monster Complex. Become a Monster Complex member. Find out how to join our family at patreon.com slash monstercomplex. Subscribe to our free online magazine at monstercomplex.com. I'm Will Christopher. We'll see you again for the next episode of Monster Complex. Monster Complex.